Today I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. Hear now the word of God. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he goes but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this but when. Christ, in the middle of this, that we are of this age, that we get to know how to have access to you. That we see by the Holy Spirit's teaching of the tabernacle and temple that you desire to be with your people. But we also learn, Father, from that that we must be righteous. And that we are not righteous. Father, we thank you so much for your son and his righteousness. That by his blood, we are able now, even as we are here, reading and proclaiming and hearing your word, able to dwell with you, to be drawn nearer to you. Father, by your promises and by the things that you have taught by your spirit, accomplished by the work of your son, May we be drawn near to you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The intent of the writer to the Hebrews in this particular chapter is to get to this point about Jesus, the but when Christ. And he even says in the past... um, Two sermons that I have been preaching that he didn't want to take the time to go through and to speak of those things in detail because he was really wanting to get to this highlighted point. Now, I took some time to go through and talk about the furniture that was in the tabernacle and in the temple because I think it was good for us to be reminded of the intent that God had. And as we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit is teaching his people For us to understand the very character of being those who would dwell with God. Or what God wants from his people and what is necessary for his people to be with God. And so as we now move to the very highlighted point, this is a very exciting part of this particular chapter. Because we keep seeing barriers in everything that we see in the furnishings and in the structure of the tabernacle and temple, that there is limitations on being able to get into that holy place ourselves. that there is a problem that has to be dealt with. And this particular chapter is highlighting the great joy, the good things that have now come, that we have this access fully to Jesus Christ. 
And so it's a very exciting passage for me to go through this day. And I, I don't have particular three points, but I have three things that I want you to be thinking about as we go to the end of this particular passage that I've read for you to this morning. The first thing that I want you to think about is to continue to remember the furniture and the function of the tabernacle and temple as we go through this passage. It's important for us to remember what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. As we see again, it is the Holy Spirit that is teaching us about the tabernacle and the temple. There's a purpose and point. This is not some kind of old folky idea that the Lord wants us to understand. That actually we see in this passage that this is symbolic for us to be able to understand what we have now. So it is very much this old covenant teaching of the tabernacle and the temple is symbolic. It is symbolism for us to understand what great riches we have. They would have understood, likely, the Jews, the Hebrews, as they began to transition from the old into the new covenant. But particularly for us today, it is important for us to understand that symbolism and what God is teaching us about himself and what he is teaching us about who we are. So remember the furniture and the function of the tabernacle and the temple as we go into this passage. But then secondly, I want you to be thinking about thinking. I want you to be thinking about your mind. Here in this particular passage, we see three times things that have to do concerning our thinking, what's going on with our mind. We see this peculiar um, highlighting that the priest would go and he would make atonement not only for his own sins, but the unintentional sins of the people. Another way of saying that, the sins of ignorance of the people. And it's a very interesting thing for us to, to think about for a moment, but it has to do with how we are thinking, what we know, what we, uh, what we were thinking about when we were sinning. And then we see twice the word conscience in this particular passage. And it's important for us to know what that word means and what that means and what the fact that the old covenant that the temple and tabernacle could not do in their activity, in the function of those particular symbols of this age, but what Jesus is able to do now that he has come and he has been our high priest, what, it, what effect it is having, having on our conscience and then lastly, which I've already kind of previewed it, is that it is Jesus and the Holy Spirit that is doing this work. That it is there twice the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this passage. One, in the teaching of the tabernacle, but in the actual application of the work of Jesus Christ into our own conscience. It is both the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that makes it effective that we are able to have our consciences purified, and perfected. So again, to remember the furniture and the function. Now again, when you, I think sometimes when we read things in the Old Testament, it is difficult for us to really grasp the magnitude of what is going on here. But we need to see that in these two different zones of the tabernacle and temple, and also to remember the third zone, you have the courtyard, which is where the people were, the normal people. And then you have the priests, that were in the holy place. And then there was this regular activity occurring there amongst those three particular pieces of furniture. You had the, can anybody run off the top of my head without looking down? What were the three pieces of furniture that were in the holy place? Not the most holy place, but the three pieces of furniture that are in the holy place, the tabernacle. The lampstand. The table with the bread of presence. The altar of incense, which is kind of a tricky question here because in Hebrews it, it makes it seem like it's already in the most holy place. But we know in the Old Testament that in the tabernacle it was actually in the holy place. And then I think it did have, there's a transitional component there. We know that in the veil that the prayers of incense or the incense is prayers going into the most holy place. And then I think in the temple, though, there is a place where it actually makes a cross in there. So it's, it's kind of an interesting transitional piece of furniture as our prayers are making its way into the most holy place. But we know there is that this is, there's regular activity we see in this particular passage that the priest, the regular priest, not the high priest, is there on a sometimes daily basis. One, the lampstand has to have oil completely refurbishing it. 
with the oil so that it is burning continually. We know that the bread is brought in on a weekly basis and that we know that the incense is burned twice a day. And it's teaching us something about what it's like to dwell with God. That, and we see that when Jesus comes, he says, I am the light. I am the bread. And he teaches us how to pray. We see that the things that are going on in that holy place are not things that have disappeared in essence, but in particularity of how these particular pieces of furniture and the divisions of that. But we know that the Lord desires for us to know that he is the light, that he is the revelation of truth. And he shines before us his bread, his provision and his care and his sustenance for us. And we know that here, just like in the, in the tabernacle, that twice a day prayers were given, that we are to be constantly in prayer. So these teachings are still for us. And so we need to understand what God is desiring from his people by these particular furnitures and functions of going on in the tabernacle. And then we move on into the most holy place and we see there the Ark of the Covenant. Can people tell me what the three things were in the Ark of the Covenant? Excuse me? The law. law. We have the tablets of the covenant. We have the um, bowl of the manna. And what else? And the budding staff. The amazing, mysterious budding staff. And then we see the connection of, we see that the the lampstand is made to resemble the blossoms of an almond blossom of an almond tree. And then we also know that the budding staff had almond blossoms. And we know from the teaching that we get out of Jeremiah that that is telling us to be watchful. That God is watchful that his promises are going to be accomplished. But that we are to be watchful that his promises are going to be accomplished. That we see that God is steadfast and faithful to complete, to assure that his promises are going to be complete. We see that this manna is unique, that's different and separate from the regular bread that we have in the holy place. That this is bread from heaven. An extraordinary bread from heaven. And Jesus once again says, I am this bread. We know this now. We see that this sustenance and this miracle, that this is something coming from above. And then we see in the budding staff staff, this priestly promise, the necessity of a priest, of a high priest, of God's designated priest. But we also see there this promise of resurrection as where this dead staff is blossoming. And coming alive, we see this symbol of resurrection. So we see those beautiful things and in those particular areas. And of course, we have the tablet of the covenant that all these things are interwoven and written into the element of his character and also his calling for righteousness and holiness. And seated on the top of that is the mercy seat with the cherubim. We see this glory of God as he is dwelling there amongst these things, amongst his people And all of these things are covered in gold to highlight his glory. We see gold everywhere. The writer to the Hebrews, he holds back on even talking about the gold until he's in the most holy place. But even the furniture that was in the holy place is covered in gold. And it's beautiful. It's glorious. We see this glory and we see his righteousness. We see his righteousness by the necessary of all the cleansing. But then we also see that as you go into the most holy place, and it's highlighted in this particular passage, that this particular high priest who is going in once a year does not go into that place without blood. This glory that is resonating in everything we see in the furniture and the function of the tabernacle and temple requires blood. And we see lots of blood. We see lots of glory. We see lots of righteousness. And we see lots of blood. Can you see the picture that he is painting for us in this tabernacle and temple? That he is one who desires to dwell with his people. But there's these layers of separation for God's people to get to him. But the fact that he's actually inviting us and giving us a way to be amongst this glory. To be amongst this provision. To be recipients of this promise of a priest and this promise of resurrection and hope. We cannot look at this place without thinking about his glory, 
and thinking about his righteousness, then we cannot look at this particular place and look at the pieces of furniture and look at the function without being reminded of our sin. Even there inside of the Ark of the Covenant, every piece that's inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant itself is showing us and that the Holy Spirit is teaching us that we are lawbreakers, that we are sinners. We see there, even as the bread of heaven comes down, the manna, we are reminded of the stories of complaining and dissatisfaction with the very bread of heaven. And that the very staff of Aaron that had to bud, this presentation of promise and priesthood was given because of grumbling and complaining. In every one of those pieces, we see his grace, we see his majesty, but we see our need to have that blood covering all of these things. And in the middle of that, Jesus is dwelling. So it's important for us to remember. We need to remember this, that this is something for us. This particular passage is highlighting what's going on in the functioning, that, the, that there's more and more separation, that there are, there are priests who are able to dwell there at the table, but to get to the very most holy place, there's only one. And you even know that it's not even this one, but it represents the necessity of this one, this high priest, this great priest. And even he, when he goes into that place, he has to go making atonement for his own sin. We should be mesmerized by his glory and his righteousness. And we should be humbled by our sin when we look at this. And so it's good for us to remember all of these things, which I've highlighted again for us in that particular first section of this passage, and for us to remember the necessity of this blood to be able to go further in and deeper into dwelling with God. But it is so wonderful that this particular passage is telling us that because the conscience of the worshiper cannot be perfected by this alone, That even though the Holy Spirit is active and in teaching us what glory God has and what unrighteousness we have, that there has to be something beyond the tabernacle and the temple, something beyond the earthly high priest, something beyond the earthly holy places that has to be accomplished for us to go further in. And then we see that but when Jesus appeared as a high priest, Of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We see highlighted once again that Jesus is the great high priest. And that he is what it was all about. That all the good things that were to come, that all of this symbolism was pointing to, has come in Jesus Christ. And that his death on the cross and his defeating sin and death through resurrection is what actually accomplished and what blood that was actually spilt so that we can truly have a dwelling amongst God. That we can be in the holy place. That even that earthly holy place was only a symbol. And that these things were only there until Jesus came. But we see here something unique that's not been mentioned as much in this particular book so far. We see this highlighting of conscience. We see this highlighting of something when it has to do with how we think. We see this highlighting of how the priest was making atonement for are unintentional sins. What does that mean? What is it that we are those who are having our mindset on the Spirit, which is the title of this sermon today? So again, we see God's posture. We see His holiness. We see His righteousness. We see His love and His heart to dwell amongst His people. But who are we? Who are we? If we see that God is a God of righteousness, he is creator, we see him to be savior, we see him to be one who loves. But what kind of titles could we have? What kind of titles do you think of in light of everything that we've seen here in this passage? 
What would be some identities that we would have as we consider who we are in light of this particular calling? One of those identities are actually mentioned in this passage. What are we? We are fallen creation. Okay, so we are sinners. We are sinners in need of salvation. That's my point number one. We are those who are both sinners in ignorance and we are so sinners in rebellion. We are both. We have those who are born in sin. We are those who are born in sin. We are those who are doing things that we don't even realize that are displeasing to God. And then there are things about us that are actually in rebellion to God. What else are we identified as? We are worshipers. We see in this particular passage that when it comes and the tables are turning, we see focusing on God. But when it's coming to us, we are worshipers. And so that means that our identity is to be worshipers. And we know that we are taught. We can tell from the scripture. We can tell by nature that we are all worshiping something. It's just a matter of who and what we are worshiping. We cannot be removed from just as we cannot in of ourselves be removed from the identity of sinners in need of a savior, we cannot be removed from the identity of being worshipers. And so what we would desire, if we want to be those who are not destined for destruction or devoted to destruction like the passage from this morning, we want to be worshipers of the true and living God. And so we are worshipers. What else are we in light of worshipers? When we think about, and this is going out a little bit broader, what is, how does Jesus refer to us? We're his children. That's one of the things on my list. We are his children. What else? We're sheep. Good. Followers of Jesus. What, are, what else? What are we called to made in the Great Commission? We are worshipers. We are called to be disciples. We are, to be called, we are called to be students and followers and those who are mimickers of our great master. We are sinners in need of grace. We are worshipers that need to be called to worship to the holy God. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are children and we are heirs of God. But what do we see now when we look at this picture, this glorious picture of what Jesus has given us and what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in the tabernacle, in the temple, and even in the passage this morning that we have had in the lectionary reading? What else are we considered to be amongst Christ? What? We are brothers. That's true. We are because we are the heirs, the heirs. Um, title kind of follows that. We're children and brothers. We're co-brothers with with Jesus. But we're also one more thing that we haven't talked about so far. We are a priesthood of believers. I didn't put that in the list. That's a good one. What else? What's that? Gardeners. (laughs) That's a thoughtful one, but that's not what I'm thinking. We are friends. What is God showing us in the tabernacle and the temple that he desires to dwell amongst us, not just as family, but that we see that Jesus, that when he even transitions from talking about what kind of servants we are, and and the word worshiper here in this particular passage is likened to that of service to God, to serve God in worship. But we also know that we serve God in discipleship, and that even as his brothers, we are those who serve him. But he goes even further and beyond that he even talks about that we, we are slaves. We are slaves, and, but we have this transitional element of being those that Jesus calls to be friends. When we think about dwelling at a table and eating, we love to have food with our friends. This week, I was for the first Saturday that I've had in... I don't know how many months I wasn't focused on some kind of project here or that mini split at my house. That mini split has taken so many of my Saturdays along with the workers here. And I, and I would imagine that some of you all felt that too. We did move the piano out, which you may have noticed, but that didn't take very long. But other than that project, there wasn't any kind of looming thing that we had to get done. And I know Dave got to enjoy dealing with the septic tank system, so I'm sure that was a lot of fun. Who <laughs> was freed up to deal with that. Um, and I, I know Kevin got to go and play at an arcade. I mean, it was just nice to be able to be free from that. So I started calling up 
different pastors that have been talking that I've been talking to, and that so we need to get together for lunch. We need to get together and, and talk. And, and I was calling them up, and I said, "Hey, I've got a free Saturday." And I was calling different ones up, and, and we always say, "Let's go for lunch. Let's go sit and talk and be amongst each other, and let's eat and enjoy each other's fellowship." There is that connection because. I want to be with friends. I didn't say, hey, friend, let's go and cut grass together. <laughs> you know, or let's, let's, let's go do some menial tasks together. I mean, that's a good thing to do. It's nice to be able to work with friends too. But we know that one of the highlights that we do with our friends is that we eat with them. And we dwell with them. And we see that. And so when we have these things in our mind, we realize that there are things in our minds that are being highlighted in these particular callings that we are, that there are barriers. We see here in this passage that we have this barrier of our sins, the sins of ignorance, the things it's talking about our mind that we don't even know. We are so enthralled and embellished and, and, and what's the word I'm looking for? We're so covered up with sin that we don't even realize some of the things that we're doing are sinful. And I was thinking about that in light of, speaking of the mini splits, I was thinking about that, that um, my journey of doing the mini splits, and it's funny, I have, I have a friend at work named Daniel, and he's, he's got a, he's, he's licensed HVAC guy, even though he's doing computer work now, and I was explaining to him that I had this horrible electric bill, and I'm going to do this mini split to cut my electric down, and he's like, well, I, you know, he pulls out this little, ta- little thing in his wallet that says that he's a licensed HVAC guy, and so, I, oh, I can ask him questions about it. And so I was telling him the things that I was reading about the mini split. And I said, I think I can do this. I can think I can do that. And he was saying, I don't know if you can do that. And I said, but the instructions said that I can do that. And he's like, oh, well, I don't know a lot about mini splits. Maybe you're right. And so there was this, just to kind of summarize real quickly, that you have Freon. And I was thinking that I could just hook up the wall unit, hook up the outside unit and the Freon lines and just turn it on and be good. And he said, no, you've got you to gotta vacuum out the Freon lines. And you've got to get all of the bad stuff out, all the air and the moisture out before you let the Freon go in there. And I said, the instructions said I can just hook it up. And he said, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's the case. Maybe you can do that. What do I know? <laughs> I'm just an HVAC guy. Well, I was reading instructions that was talking about doing that very thing. It was the wrong instructions. It wasn't applicable to my particular system. And so I was doing these things and I was doing them wrongly and I was in ignorance. Even though I had a guy trying to warn me, you're ignorant, you're not doing it the right way. I was reading something wrongly and I was thinking I was applying something that I was reading outside of context to my situation. And therefore I was doing it wrong and I actually ended up costing myself a few hundred dollars in Freon because I contaminated some Freon and I almost contaminated about $1,000 worth of Freon in the other system that I was installing. And I started thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, I didn't mean to mess up. I wasn't like, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to go the opposite way that I was instructed. I'm going to go a different way because I would rather have it this way. But I desired to do it the right way, but I was acting in ignorance and a little bit of hard-headedness. Even though I was reading instructions, I was reading it out of context. Hopefully you can see where I'm going here. That I... When it comes before God, there are things that we do that in that very way. And it's still not pleasing to God. It's still in opposition to the things that he is desiring for us. And then there's many things because of ignorance and because of maybe some hard-headedness that we do in the wrong way. And that we continue to do in the wrong way. And here we see that the old covenant people, they were also tainted in the same way. But that, that there is a grace of God that he was even covering the sins that were unintentional. You know, later on, I was able to go back and read the instructions, and I realized they do have a mini-split system that already has Freon inside of the lines and in the wall handler, and you can't just connect it up. But I was reading it outside of context. It wasn't applicable to me. And now that I go back and I read the instructions with the experience that I have, I can go, wow, that all makes sense. I'm not so ignorant anymore. Isn't that how our study of the Word is in many ways, where we may read a particular passage and we take it out of context and we think and we operate in that for a season. And then in time, after 
maybe other people even even trying to tell you. I know I felt that way when it came to the sovereignty of God. I had people saying, no, God is sovereign over these things. I'm like, no, no, no. If you read this particular couple of verses, you know God's not sovereign over that particular element of our life. And then eventually, because of the Holy Spirit opening my eyes and being able to see the fullness of God's word, I go back and I can read that properly now and go, oops, I was very wrong. I was even teaching other people incorrectly. Maybe even being a stumbling block to people giving God the fullness of his glory for what he does and who he is as a sovereign God. There's ignorance there because my mind, because we are born in sin and because we are ignorant and because we're also rebellious, my mind is not dwelling on the right things. And we see in this particular passage that Everything that's going on here, and even though it's the Holy Spirit teaching us about the tabernacle, that the teaching tool, the tabernacle, and the temple, that all of those things are not sufficient enough to perfect our consciences and our minds, to make us aware. What does the word conscience mean? There's a lot of quizzes today. But I know with the hum of the, hum of the air conditions, you might be sleepy. What does the word conscience mean? And think about the word itself. What does the word con mean other than stealing something or pulling one over someone? What does it mean in its its broken down sense? What? No, it's not. In this case, it's not. With. With. So the word, it means with science. Conscience. With science. And what does science mean? Knowing. It means with knowledge. And so it has to do with our mind. And we know that it's talking about here on how we think, what we know. And because of corruption, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, and because of our own sinfulness, and because of our ignorance, we don't think the right way. And we can't think the right way. We are bound to think wrongly because of sin. But because of what Jesus is doing here, we see in this passage, because of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, his highest priesthood, him going to the holy place not made with hands, him going before the Father and actively with the Father now, because of his blood, of what he did on the cross, and because of the grave that he rose from, our consciences can be made not only not guilty, but can be perfected. It's this These two words we see here in the first section when it talks about consciences, it says that it cannot perfect our consciences. But then it says that the work of the Spirit in Jesus is purifying our consciences. So not only are we being purified, but we're also being perfected. It's an active thing. It's not just an identity of our mind, but that God is transforming our mind to be able to know Him. To be able to not only just be with him, but that our minds are being transformed. I'm going to go through a few passages here. So if you have your Bibles with you, keep, get your fingers all ready for flipping through real quickly. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 8, it says, I will cleanse them from all guilt of sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And it's interesting that there's this word sin and rebellion. And when we think about it in light of our unintentional sins and think about our rebellious sins, that this particular cleansing, this particular purification is sufficient and powerful enough to cleanse us from both unintentional and intentional sins. Now, we do know, and it's a perfect time for us to have this particular passage come in light, that we know that we cannot continue to embrace our sins that are intentional. We know the sin of Achan was intentional. It was very clear. Don't take the devoted things. Achan took the devoted things. And it separated him from God. He could not continue. They could not continue with the blessing of God, with embracing that sin. It had to be removed It has to be cleansed. A lot of times when we think about God's grace, people tend to want to dissect the component of that purification and cleansing element of what is in us, that God is doing a work in us. It's not to remain in sin. That grace cannot be in that remaining element of our life. It has to be in the removal element of our life. God is removing that from us. 
Well, let's think about a few passages in the scripture concerning consciences. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God did not that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer we see that consciences that our thinking can be seared or hardened here we have people who are teaching deception Teachings of demons, insincerity of liars, we can see that there's a twisting of truth, the the twisting of how to think, so much that their consciences are seared. So we know that we can't just say, well, conscience by itself is a good thing. That thinking in of itself is a good thing. A lot of times we'll think about, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, about the liberty of conscience. And we think about in light of our recent holiday, that we need to be, the, the number one thing is the freedom of speech. We need to be able to have the freedom to think for ourselves. That we're not going to be bound by someone else's ideas. That we're going to be bound to our own consciences. But left in our own consciences is not necessarily a good thing. Like how Samuel Adams said it when he was, after they signed the Declaration of Independence, he highlights that God is the one who gives us our ability to have freedom of thought. But that freedom of thought is to Worship the sovereign. He says, now our sovereign has been reestablished. Meaning that, he, and he even says, he says, this idol of royalty, meaning England, the king and the queen and all of that, that that is an idol that has no eyes or ears, does not hear our prayers. But now we are free to worship the sovereign, to worship Jesus Christ. And so only when our consciences are bound to Jesus Christ, is it a good thing? And we see here that, there, that there's criticism amongst those who have their consciences seared because they are being legalistic and their legalism is telling people that they cannot do this or that, that God has told us in His Word is created to be good and that we can do this with thanksgiving because it has been made holy by word and prayer. Now, remember, keep this whole temple and tabernacle image of where the word is inside of the Ark of the Covenant and this whole movement of prayer that when we're dwelling with Christ, when our consciences are bound with Christ, we're also going to be bound with his word. We're also going to be bound with our prayerfulness and connection to him in that way. That if we're going to rely on our consciences, we better be bound by this thing that has being the thing that's making us holy is within the word of God and prayer. So consciences alone are not enough. They can be seared. They can be hardened. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through 30. I know I'm flipping through very quickly, but I don't want to take too long here. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake in thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that which was to be given thanks. Here we have an understanding that there are sometimes contrasting consciences. And we know that conscience, again, is not the rule. We have a liberty to operate off of our own conscience. But sometimes someone else's conscience, their way of thinking with knowledge, with their thoughts, with their minds, and with their hearts can be different. Remember, just like I said, that I had that friend, Daniel, who was like, no, I don't think that's the right way. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it this way because <laughs> the way I'm reading this. And he was gracious. He didn't say, you stupid guy, you idiot. He was out there with me Monday vacuuming out my 
my free onlines. He was so gracious to me. <laughs> I would try to give him money and he wouldn't even do it. But he bore with me as I learned to understand the right thing. So we've we got to know that our consciences are not the determining fact, but we need to understand that it has to be bound to something. So see, when we just think about consciences by itself, we get, when, when they're seared, we can see that there's legalism. But we also know, if we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that there is this warning to us that there are people who are going to be of lawlessness. So you have legalism and licentiousness that are both active when people are just thinking for themselves apart from having their minds set on God. We even see in the New Testament passage that we read today that there's this conflict between our, what we want to do and, 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 and God and what our flesh is calling. Our, our minds are sometimes divided. We need to have our consciences in subjection to Jesus Christ. Whenever we fall to legalism or licentiousness, either way, it's still lawlessness. It's in opposition to God. A lot of times we think that the opposite of legalism is the right thing. And then you have this over here. If you go too far off of that side of the horse, you're in licentiousness. And if you fall off of either side of the horse, you know you're going to still fall to the ground. And typically, just like I saw at the parades, the things that horses leave on the ground are not very pleasant. That's typically where we land when we are not centered in Jesus Christ and his truth. But we see here in this particular passage that the potency of the great high priestness of Jesus Christ is that he purifies our conscience and that it has a purpose, that it has a purpose that we are transitioning from our dead works, our ignorant works, our rebellious works, to be able to do the thing there in verse 14, which is to truly serve the living God. That's the amazing thing about the word worship. It means to serve and to be a disciple. And even as his brother and even as his friends, we are delighted when we have our consciences cleansed by Jesus Christ. We are delighted to be those who get to serve our brother and our friend. Isn't that what you love to do? I mean, if you've got this great dish that you know that one of your friends likes to eat, and, you, and, you, and you, sometimes you can know your friends. Like, I know this friend likes this. You know, I know my friend John Bernat likes Thai food, and he likes, um, he likes basil. If I knew how to cook Thai food, I would, and if I was good at it, I would make a basil drunken noodles dish for John, if I was going to make something for John. But because he likes it so much, he's had it a lot, I would probably never make it because he would criticize it as not being so good. But we, we want to serve. We want to serve in a way, and when our minds are being cleansed and perfected by Jesus Christ, we are able to do the things that we're called to do. We then have not only our rebellion is no longer an appetite for us, but serving is our appetite for righteousness. We will be hungry and thirsting for righteousness I want to take just a quick moment. It's kind of a side note on thinking about these unintentional sins because I was thinking about this in light of our culture today. And I just feel like I just need it. It's kind of like a bonus moment here. When we think about these things that we do in ignorance, you know, I made the kind of light of this situation with, with the mini split. But it's a very dangerous thing. My wife and I, and I know some of you all went to go see the movie The Sound of Freedom. And I was thinking about after that movie how... There, we are in a tremendous war against children in our world. And I was thinking about these four components, and this is not locked in stone. There's other people who probably come up with different kinds of summaries of how this is. We have these four different battlefronts that are this war against children. And when we think about God's posture about children, and it was really great in that movie, the, the passage that the guy said in a moment when one of the perpetrators was about to be arrested. I'm not going to give away the movie there, but I was just like, bang, that's, that's exactly how God's posture is toward children. But when we have the abortion front, and we see how rampant and how much that has an effect, the bloodshed that's going on, these sacrifices that 
that Baal, basically this false god, this false deception that Satan has put in the minds of people to follow after this, to sacrifice, to give things that are supposed to be devoted to worship to him, to be actually killed in the womb. We see that that is definitely a place. We see it also in, just like in the movie, this trafficking that's going on. And we see also in how there's this identity confusion. Again, all of these things have to do with deception. And we can look at movies like this and we can say, well, you know, that's just so easy for me to understand that I would never want to do this particular thing. I would never want to abort a child. I would never want to traffic a child. I would never want to, to confuse a child in their identity. But think about this other layer of how the culture is embracing it in a way where they're not thinking about killing a child. They're not thinking about trafficking a child or they're not thinking about necessarily um, creating confusion to a child. But it has become because they are confused. It is the the moral idea to allow these things to happen. It actually becomes political things to celebrate. But they actually consider it to be good and noble to promote these things. And see, we have this other category that I see that is we allow this sexualization of children. We allow this politicalization of choice and freedom. That we will take all of these things that are good and Satan always turns it and twists it and turns it upside down. That we live in a culture that because of how they're thinking, and if you think about... And I, I know this is not always good to talk about infant children, but when we think about the, the immersion of, of people in porn and how that leads to trafficking, that there are people, we know that statistically, that in every church there are people participating in this wickedness, and we have to know that that's actually feeding trafficking. That it's actually promoting the thing that people are standing up. I mean, it was the number one movie on July 4th, and people were like, I can't stand this. And I bet you many people who went to see that movie went home and participated in things on the internet that they shouldn't have been participating in because their their minds, their consciences have been seared and confused and they don't realize that they're actually participating in that great heinous sin of trafficking by doing that. So the question I have for you, you might say, well, I don't participate in all of those things. I think it's important for us to understand that as we are here still in this age, that we are being those who are identified with justification because Christ has done what he's done. And we are a part of that work of regeneration and sanctification, but we have not yet reached glorification. That great glory of gold and righteousness that we see there as a a symbol in the temple is that one day we will be made completely pure, like pure gold. And we're not there. And so I call upon each of you and myself to be thinking, how are we living? Are we living in such a way that we are worshipers and disciples and those who understand what great benefit that we have as children, brothers, and friends of God, that we are hanging on to every word of what he is saying and applying it into our life? That we were able to actually stop a moment. You know, I did this little system and lost a lot of Freon. But thankfully, because I had a friend who was there with me. And I was able to keep going back and reading over the instructions. And I had another guy on a tech support. And I was able to stop just at the moment where I was about to lose about $1,000 worth of Freon. I had enough people equipping around me. Enough information and knowledge. That thankfully the Lord kept me from putting myself in that place. Where I was about to really cause a major expense. Where are we in that path in our walk with God? Are we doing things and thinking? Is there something, is there things in our conscience that are not bound by God's word and our discipleship with him and our, our, our dwelling with him and our worship with him that is causing us to have sins that are actually fueling great wickedness? Because we may not be doing some great and heinous thing, but we may be participating in a culture of those who are doing these great heinous things, and we are participating, maybe by the approval of those things. If you remember in what it says in Romans and also in Ephesians, that we are also guilty. When we take this virtue signaling idea and we see this, this whole push of how what is wicked is now wokeness and, and that it's okay and that it's good for us to celebrate these things. 
We're in that kind of culture today. And we are warned in his words that I just read that this is what's going to happen. And this is on the other side of the cross and resurrection. That there's lawlessness occurring. And there are things that we can participate in, either as a church or as families and as individuals in our private hearts and our own consciences, that is actually participating in things that are wicked and against God. But the great hope, brothers and sisters, is that he came and he is effective as a high priest to purify our consciences. John, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. He is the lampstand. And in him there is no darkness. Remember that room was dark and it was showing forth his light. He has filled the room with his light. And if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, if we walk in that great light that Jesus is, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. This is why we are here. To worship him, to serve him, to be his disciples, to be heirs of this table, and to eat with him as friends. And he delights that as we call out upon him, Lord, continue to cleanse us. He is not only faithful to respond, but he delights in cleansing us of all of our sins. Let us continue daily weekly, together, to come to him for the cleansing of our sins. Let us pray. Our Heavenly 